I would love to have you take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Isaiah, chapters 11 and 12. And I would love for you as well to find the sermon notes in your bulletin. I know that those will be essential for you to keep track of where we're going. As you find your way to those places, I wanted to add, excuse me, wow, just a couple of things, if greeting, and my, wow, excuse me here, just a second, going off mic. Okay, I'm better. I'm not sick. Want to say a couple words of thank you uh, as well. Now, we just came out of the holiday season, of course, and a um, whole number of things took place. And this church family was was present and just uh, just had a wonderful time together. Uh, Thanksgiving, uh, we began the holiday season and had a Thanksgiving event here Sunday night prior to Thanksgiving. Um, filled the place. Um, kind of maxed our capabilities, and we'll have to figure out next year how to go from there. Um, Christmas presentation, the production we do three times, fantastic, well done. Four Sundays of Advent. Uh, Blue Christmas took place, meaningful, smaller group setting. And then Christmas Eve, as you know, three services, really important this year that we did that. 430-some of y'all came, which would have really pressed two, so... That's why we did that, and I think it was, it was really a good time. New Year's Eve, about um, 100 of y'all came. Others of you were nestled snug in your beds or whatever you did when you go home Christmas Eve or New Year's Eve, rather, and uh, wake up at midnight to enjoy the celebration. Uh, one way or the other, you have to. Um, but we had a good time. And I also wanted to say thank you for navigating with us the colder uh, weather and snow. Last Sunday, as it snowed, many of you were not here uh, more in our online audience today. Uh, roads are great, but you risk your life in the parking lot. I know. That's kind of the way that is. And watch it when you leave, because when it rains, it always gets slipperier. It really does. It's better at 20 degrees than 40. So be careful out there. Well, uh, today we come then to Isaiah. You know that last week with Pastor Ben, we stepped back into Isaiah after being out for Thanksgiving and Advent and uh, we, we took a look at the, the larger section of, of Isaiah 10 that dealt with the problem of evil. A theodicy is the cool word for that. The problem of evil. All the way through the, through the, the years, people have asked the question, if God, why evil? And there have been all kinds of treatments of that uh, down through the years, of course, many books produced. And we embraced that a bit to think about last week. Now, there's going to be a, a steady flow from that discussion last week into where we're going today. And so I I mention it for that reason. But today then we're taking two chapters, uh, 11 and 12. 12 I take as a response of praise to to chapter 11. So that's the way we're going to deal with it. It's how I've laid it out in your sermon notes. Uh, The response part, I think, really is chapter 12. Two big sections in chapter 11. I put them under the heading, The Glorious Work of the Prince of Peace. Part of what I want to look at with you, the, a big part of it, has to do with, with the future, or to use again the theological words eschatology, eschatos, last, the study of last things. But, but as we think about the Prince of Peace, I also want to say this. There are few of us who do not long for greater peace in some area of our lives. There are few of us. Some of us think more globally, and we long to see peace between nations, uh, governments, 
things like that. For other people, it's a lot more personal, where there are challenges and relationships that are a struggle in family, you know, coming out of the holidays, uh, you know, you do. Um, Few of us have something that isn't broken somewhere, and we long for peace. We long for peace. So today we think about the Prince of Peace, the glorious work of the Prince of Peace. Yes, a big part of this is looking to what is, even today, yet future. A lot of it is, I realize. But don't forget that the Prince of Peace, who one day will make all things new, still is at work and present in our lives today, renewing and caring for us too. So even as you look ahead and say, Lord, bring that day, uh, our hearts, I think, along the way say, Lord, help me with this too, and be the Prince of Peace to me. So we get to look at a lot of fun things today. I'm excited about this. I want to pray for us, and we'll jump on it. All right? So join me, please, as we pray. Our Father, how good it is to open the Word of God together, always, always, as a church family, the privilege that is ours, week upon week, to open the Scriptures, the living, inerrant, inspired Word of God, our Father, where we meet you and we, we walk with you, and your spirit enlivens the word of God to us, and we're able to hear it and see it and understand it and, and love it and then obey it. Our Father, do that work in us today. Open our eyes, open blind eyes to the gospel, to Christ, even as we speak about these things today ahead of us. So do your work, the Spirit of God. Uh, we ask it of you. In the name of Jesus, amen. So as always, on your sermon notes, there are a few comments under review. I do need you to look with me at the third bullet point for a moment so that I can make one uh, edit, okay? It says, uh, the term the Holy One of Israel is used in the, it says NT for New Testament. Wow, big mistake. I let that get by me. It's the Old Testament. I wrote that, so it's my mistake. It's used in the Old Testament 31 times. We'll see that today, but the Holy One of Israel, a title for God, Uh, wonderful, wonderful, but used in the Old Testament, 31 times 25 in Isaiah, all right? Now, uh, I give you the the section there under today's text, and I, as a way of introducing this, um, I I look with you here to remember the promises of God that that have been made prior to Isaiah about Messiah who is to come, and yet all kinds of reasons at the moment for Isaiah that would cause a person to say, I just don't see it. Now, I want to to just deal with that a little bit more, and then we'll read the text and get going here. But um, Isaiah writing about 750 years before Christ, if you fast forward about, oh, I don't know, 875 years, you would come to Peter writing First and Second Peter, 65 A.D., 70 A.D., someplace in there. So, so, 800 years, someplace in there. Later, now in the intervening years, Christ has come, died on the cross, risen from the dead, ascended to heaven, and the promise of His coming again. Now, Peter, now from his vantage point, looking back at the first coming of Christ, also was looking ahead to a second coming. We're going to talk about that today. Okay. He was looking ahead, and he was saying in 2 Peter 3, know this, that in the latter days, mockers will come with their mocking, saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they have since the day of creation. 
uniformitarianism. I don't see it. These are folks who look around and say, you keep talking about Jesus coming, and I don't see him anywhere. So where is this promised coming? Now, those mockers that Peter speaks of could have, back in Isaiah's day, said a similar thing. You're talking about a Messiah who is to come. Well, where is he? Now, the answer in terms of history, if Isaiah is writing about 750 BC, what's the answer? Where's the promise of his coming? Well, it's in about 750 years, round numbers. But he is coming. He is coming. And he did. Now, Isaiah 11 then speaks about first coming and second coming. And I want us to kind of look at that together. All right? So um, a big theology day. If you didn't think you were a lover of theology, work on it. Because today, uh, we're going to get some good stuff. I promise. So I want to read then Isaiah 11, verses 1 through 9, under the heading, as you see in front of you, God's promises to David will be amazingly fulfilled. So here we go, God's word, as I read it. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the lion, and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, the young shall lie down together, the lion shall eat straw like the ox, the nursing child will play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned Child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. We'll stop there. Wow. Few of us would read verses 69 and not say, man, I want to go there. I don't know where that is, Where is the place that natural predators don't eat each other or all other manner of evil take place? A lot of our lives are built around the idea of being safe. Isn't that true? Certainly, people think about that today for a lot of reasons, but ordinarily, few of you went to bed last night without checking the front door to see if it's locked. You drive someplace, you lock the car door, You think about where you're going to go if it's late at night. Think, is it safe for me to go there? Think of how your life would change if you did not have to worry at all about being safe. Your words were safe. Your physical person was safe. You didn't have to be guarded. You're just safe. Nothing will eat you. Can you imagine? 
quickly we say, well, when is this, Lord? What's that look like? Do you really mean, do you really mean harmony in nature? Do you really mean this? Hmm, well, we'll come to that in just a moment, but I want to back up to the beginning, all right? Hebrews 11, verse 1, builds on the same analogy with which chapter 10 concludes. You remember, as I mentioned, uh, Pastor Ben last week, talking about God's dealing with the problem of evil, and in particular, his judgment of Assyria. Assyria was the world power at the time, and they were wreaking havoc all over the area. And if you recall, in our study, we've talked about this. Israel, at the time, divided into two parts, the north and the south. Assyria came in and wiped out the guys in the north. That division, of course, between the two, 931. uh, The Assyrians wiped out the north, 722. So it's when Isaiah's busy working, and then... The Assyrians came and knocked on the door of the south. They were right there, ready to eat them up too. And as we'll see later in Isaiah, uh, the historical account here, it was only by an amazing work of God that they were repelled. But, but God was going to deal with Assyria. That's the point in Isaiah 10, 33, uh, 33 and 34. God is going to deal in judgment with this nation of Assyria. And he uses the analogy of a tree getting chopped down. Okay, that's the point. He says, I'm going to lop off the boughs, uh, and, and you're, going to, you're going to be cut down to size, so to speak. Now, the same word picture then is used in 11.1, except of Israel, of the house of David. It's like a tree that's been cut down. Now, cutting down trees, of course, is in my family uh, background. My, my grandfather uh, was a, a lumberjack for a time, came over from the old country. Um, I don't know if he brought his crosscut saw on the boat and got it through Ellis Island, or if he got it over here, but he uh, first stopped in Minnesota and then back out here, and he had a big crosscut saw. I remember in the basement of our house for a long, long time, my grandfather's old crosscut saw. I knew how to cut down trees. Well, the, the picture here is of a stump from which new life springs. Some of you have seen this in different places. I don't just mean maybe the suckers that come up, but if you go to the Olympic National Park, the rainforest, You'll find places, they're nursery logs, so to speak, where a log will fall down and new trees will grow right out of it. So the idea here, of course, is there's this, there's this stump. It looks like it's all over for the house of, of Jesse. This would be the, the house of David. Jesse, David's father, okay? So there's going to come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, this tree that people would look at it and say, there's no hope. Isaiah, writing for God, says there is hope. Even from that cut-down tree, there will be new life come. Now, same analogy, of course, Daniel 4 with Nebuchadnezzar. You may remember, God gave Nebuchadnezzar a dream about about a tree getting cut down. And Nebuchadnezzar said, oh, my goodness sakes, what's that about? Asked Daniel and said, you're the tree. It was not a good day uh, when God cut down that tree. But here, new life, a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Now, quickly, beginning in verse 2, we get a description, and we begin to see that that this person so described is, is the coming Messiah. More evidence of that in just a moment. But, but verse 2 then, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. A spirit of wisdom and understanding, counsel and might, knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees or by what he hears, like, like most people do, you get just a cursory look at things and you make a judgment. No, rather this coming one will judge with righteousness. Right away we say, I want that. I want that righteous judge. Don't we all? 
Don't we all want leaders who call it right? We all want judges who get it right every single time? It's describing this wonderful rule of the Prince of Peace. Now, there's a shift in the middle of verse 4 that should ring with some familiarity. I'll tell you why. It says, he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. My goodness, so judgment. Okay, time out for just a moment. Um, I'm going to draw on your good memory because I know that we've addressed it a couple times in preaching, and I know that you took notes and will remember it forever. All right? So back in Advent, we took a look in Luke 4 about the account when Jesus was in the synagogue of Nazareth and was handed the scroll of Isaiah to read, and he found Isaiah 61. Somebody tell me you remember this. Okay, good. Thank you. John. John's on this. He found, he found Isaiah 61 and began to read, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. It sounds just like this text. It's almost a parallel text. Isaiah 61 and Isaiah 11. Okay? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And he began, Jesus read this. But he stopped, you remember, right in the middle of what we call the middle of a verse. And he's Right where it went from all these good things Messiah would do, the next line was, and the day of vengeance of our God. And he stopped right there. And he rolled up the scroll, handed it back, and everybody was looking at him. And he said, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Because the first part was about his first coming. This is the key. The next part was about his second coming. Guess what's happening in Isaiah 11? Same thing. Very often in prophetic literature, uh, two different events are crushed together. It's true in the Olivet Discourse in the Gospel of Matthew. It's true in Isaiah 61. Certainly true here, and I could give you a bunch of others, where world events are crushed together. So it looks like they're happening here, 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 and you get, wow, all that at once. No, no, that's several things pushed together. So here, the first part, chapter 11, 1 through 4a, would be a description of Messiah in his first coming and the judgment part, Messiah in his second. Now, I want, to, I want to talk about this more specifically. You have in front of you your sermon notes. I got a number of details I want to give you. All right, so stay tuned and be ready to fill in some of these things. Well, first, Messiah will come. He will be a truly spirit-empowered ruler, one who reigns in perfect righteousness and wisdom. So that's a description of that first part. More on that in just a minute. I want to go to the third bullet point next. Scripture teaches two comings of Jesus, not three. I'll let you know what I mean by that. Two comings. The first as our Savior and Redeemer. The second coming as Judge. Think Revelation 19. White horses, armies of heaven. Um, Those who believe in the doctrine of the rapture of the church, as do I, sometimes speak of the, that event imprecisely. So I'm wanting to clarify here. We sometimes refer to that event, the rapture of the church, spoken of, of course, in the New Testament multiple times. We sometimes refer to that imprecisely as the second coming. Let me tell you why it's imprecise. Okay, first coming, Jesus, born at Christmas, baby in Bethlehem, lived a perfect life, died. You know, the story of Jesus here, first coming. From there, Acts chapter 1, he after dying on the cross, rising from the dead, ascended to heaven. And you remember in that moment, there were angels who interrupted the crowd of disciples as they stood and stared in the sky. Where'd he go? He just left. And they said, men of Israel, why are you standing here gazing into heaven? This same Jesus that you saw go into heaven will come in like manner as you saw him go. They're on the Mount of Olives. There's another coming 
I would call it the second coming, because I think the Bible does, where Jesus' feet touch down on the Mount of Olives, Zechariah 14, verse 4, is a very clear reference to this event. His feet touch again on the Mount of Olives, second coming. Now, I want to just talk about eschatology for a minute, study of end times, and give you my grid, which I realize that not everyone shares in a church family. Okay, I got it, and it's okay, we're still friends. Um, Don't chase me out, I won't chase you out. But I come at this from a pre-tribulation, pre-millennial viewpoint, okay? Which is the doctrinal statement of this church, and fortunately, it's mine too. That's why it works out so well. But um, (laughs) if, if you're in a different spot on some of those issues, or you say, I don't know what you just said, it's okay, you're in a good spot. But believing that there is a time when Christ is going to come for his church, we meet him in the air. That's why it would be imprecise to say second coming. He doesn't come to earth. We go to him. Caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, 1 Thessalonians 4. Thus we shall always be with the Lord. So we often call that the second coming. Okay, uh, not really. We're, we're going to rise to meet him, I believe. And if you're a mid-trib or a pre-wrath or a post-trib, again, I got it. It's okay. I've read all the views, and I still have my favorite. Uh, And you can have yours, and we won't go to blows over that in the parking lot. But first coming, Christ, baby in Bethlehem, and so on. Second coming, I would call it the end of the tribulation time. Feet touched down again on the Mount of Olives. Thus followed by something, some kind of a kingdom period, which we'll talk about too for a few minutes. Okay? So that's my grid. may not be yours. It's okay. We're friends. It's my grid. So um, I think that's borne out here. First coming, second coming. Now, I want to back up on your notes to the second bullet point. All right? So part of this text looks toward Messiah's first coming. Part of it transcends the horizon of human experience. I've had it telecized because those are not my words. I thought they were way too lofty for me to ignore. And those come from Beale and Carson in a book I'll comment on. But they're saying, in other words, that verses 6 through 9 are talking about something beyond our normal human experience. It's something different. Looking at Messiah's second coming toward a, an age of unparalleled shalom, call it kingdom time, if you will. Now, I mentioned Beale and Carson and the C-N-T-U-O-T. I'm referring to a couple of books here. This is the C-N-T-U-O-T. That would be the commentary on the, on the New Testament use of the Old Testament, written by Carson and Beale, who are both heavyweight theologians. This is, is not bedtime reading. It'll put you to sleep. It's, it's, a, it's a reference work. Nobody reads dictionaries before going to bed. But I want you to see that this exists. That's why I brought it. I want you to know that people have done work like this. So that in the New Testament, any time there is a reference to an Old Testament text, any time, a reference or an allusion, someone has studied it and put it in a book. It looks like this. And if you are not sure about it, you can go to the index in the back and look up uh, copious notes on every single time in the New Testament there is a reference to the Old Testament. So if you're looking at it saying, what is that about? How did that prove the point? What were they thinking? You want Carson and Beale for about 50 bucks, okay? They'll help you. Well, they, they are talking about this period of shalom. I call it a kingdom age. Some have called it the millennium, okay? But this, I, I've got to define it so that it, it'll be easier in a minute to, to say a more passing reference. 
When I use the term shalom here, I I use a good Hebrew expression because I, I don't know a better word for it. A lot of times Hebrew and Greek terms don't really help us a whole lot, but shalom I think does. Sometimes people treat shalom as a term as just a way of extending a greeting. Well, shalom, everyone, and they mean goodbye or hello or something like that. Um, And certainly it could be used casually, I know, but in its Hebrew expression, it is a loaded word that means means peace and harmony in every single sense of that. So if you wish somebody shalom, you are wishing them wellness and wholeness and spiritual good and soul satisfaction and health and care. Every piece of good is loaded into that word. I wish you shalom. That's a lot different than saying, hey, have a good day. Uh, No, shalom. So they're picturing a season of shalom in creation where the animals aren't eating each other where danger is gone, where there is goodness and wellness, as it says in verse 9, in all my holy mountain, then the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. It's a season of shalom, okay? Now, I'm going to come back to that in a minute. We're hitting it in several different ways. I want to step back to verse 2 before we get too far away from it. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Who is this? Who is this? Well, Jesus, yes. Um, Some reasons why we would know that. First of all, Jesus, of course, identifies himself in Isaiah 61, a parallel text. But John 1, verse 33, you can jot that down. I don't think I have it on your notes anywhere. This is a moment where John the Baptist is explaining to his followers why he could look at Jesus and say, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world when Jesus came to be baptized. Remember Jesus, John sees him in a crowd and says, look, look, everybody, it's the Lamb of God. Why could he say that? Well, John then explains, he says, the one who sent me to baptize told me, the one on whom you see the Spirit of God descend and rest. He is the one. He is the one. Which is exactly what happened when Jesus was baptized. Spirit of God, as you know from the other gospel accounts, in the form of a dove descended from heaven, uh, rested on Jesus. And then John the Baptist said, for goodness sakes, it's just like that. And I bet John, as a good Jewish guy who knew the Bible, he was thinking, Spirit of God, rested on him, a voice from heaven, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. He was thinking, that's Isaiah 11, 2. And Isaiah 61, verse 1. I bet he was. You get to heaven someday, you ask him, what text was on his mind? He'll tell you today's text, okay? And if I'm wrong, uh, in that day it won't matter. But I, I, I suspect that, okay? Isaiah 11.2, Isaiah 61.1, John the Baptist would have known those. The Spirit of God descends on him and rests. There's the Lamb of God. God marking, God marking him. That's the signature of God. Now, I want to head over to the other side of the page, and talk about this millennial kingdom business uh, again. And I realize that some read the descriptions in verses 6 to 9 as, as, as symbolic. I understand that. I understand different types of genres. And I have, um, my goodness sakes, a lot of, of, of others who would take it a different way and say, this, is, this it doesn't really mean that the predators won't eat each other or eat the, the prey. It's just talking about a season of, of, 
of you know, peace and so on. It's just a symbolic way of saying it. By the way, Isaiah 65 says virtually the same thing. But I want to I give you, as a defense of that, a defense of my position. What would I be if I didn't defend my position, right? You can defend yours, but here's mine. Um, first of all, a quote here from Michael Vlock in the book, He Will Reign Forever. I have it there in front of you. Some spiritualize the literal meaning of these verses, but there's no good reason to do this. Nature and the animal kingdom were casualties of the fall of man, so why wouldn't the restoration of all things include a restoration of nature and the animals? Okay, that's interesting. That's out of this book, Um, He Will Reign Forever. Uh, This is a very accessible book. It's a little long, but other books you read are this long. Michael Vlock is a theologian. He was formerly at Master's Seminary in California, currently uh, just, just moved to join the, the faculty of, of Shepherd Seminary in Cary, North Carolina. But a very good book. It traces a theology of the kingdom from Genesis to Revelation. Anytime you see the word kingdom or kingdom of God, people often say today, like we sang earlier, build your kingdom here. What do you mean? He'll tell you. And he'll use the entire Bible, Genesis to Revelation, to do so. So if you ever wonder what that's about, what's the kingdom all about? Uh, This is a good book for you. And again, it's readable. Uh, It really is an extra cup of coffee maybe, but very doable. Now, on a similar vein, in terms of emphasizing the literal meaning of this, I turn to John Oswalt, or Oswalt if he's German, the NIV application commentary. And I want to read just a, a brief statement of his as well, so that you know that the view that I would take in looking at Isaiah and texts like this, that I'm not alone in it. I didn't make it up over Christmas, all right? So Oswald would say this, it seems plain to me that just as there will be a literal return of Christ, there will also be a literal new heaven and new earth over which Christ will reign. It is to that kingdom that this chapter is looking forward. Apart from the explicit biblical statements, I believe, get this, I believe the logic of creation calls for a time when God's creatures will experience creation as it was meant to be. Then he talks about the number a bit. Is it a thousand years or not? But he interacts with that in a helpful way. But I just think it's interesting. Uh, And here are two theologians who would say, no, actually, I think you should take that literally. Don't be so quick to, to blow that off, okay? Harmony, shalom. Okay, my last comment under that heading then. We long for the coming day of shalom, Even people who don't know Christ long for this. People who haven't settled the issue of Jesus as the Son of God and their Savior, I think there's a universal longing in in the human heart, except for maybe some really, really bad people who have guns and things like that that uh, intend to hurt other people with them. Um, But most people have a longing for peace. Peace in relationships, peace in the world. Most people do. People who don't know Christ Even they long for this, and they don't know why. I think it is the signature of a creator. It's the imago Dei, the image of God, written on their soul. You were made for something different. You don't know how to get there yet. You don't maybe know the Prince of Peace, but it's written on your soul, a longing for peace on earth, goodwill toward men. I think that's part of the image of God, is a dream of another day, a dream of Eden before the fall. Okay, Now, this world tends to think that it will get there by redistribution of wealth or better education or um, better laws, better leaders. 
And however much we improve laws and redistribute wealth, however much we fix the problems in the world, let me tell you, it will never be perfect until the Prince of Peace comes. It will never be perfect. So even though uh, we often get involved in these things, God's people sometimes get involved in justice issues, no problem with that. But don't be surprised when it isn't perfect, even when you get your laws right, because people are sinners and fallen. And until the Prince of Peace rules and reigns, you will never have it quite perfect, I promise. And we long, we long for that day. Okay, Um, all of that under the heading, I believe God's promises to David were real. I think they're going to all take place. The immediate ones already did in the coming of Jesus the first time. And I think there's another coming and it's going to look like this right here. You just read about it in the Bible and go, man, let's do that. All right, I want to go then to the second heading. It'll be much briefer. Chapter 11, verses 10 to 16 where I want to emphasize, as the text does, I believe, the universal nature of this. God's promises will extend to all the nations. I think that's the point in verses 10 through 16, as again, I read from God's word. In that day, watch that phrase, twice here, twice in chapter 12. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire. The nations, wow, shall the nations inquire. And his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pethros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, from the coastlands of the sea. What he just did there is go north, south, east, and west. Okay? All the points of the compass. That's what he just did. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart, and those who harass Judah, watch this, shall be cut off. Ephraim, that's the people in the north, shall not be jealous of Judah. Judah shall not harass Ephraim. Are you saying that the north and the south parts of Israel will be whole again? This split that took place in 931, are you saying it will be healed? I think so. And together, it says then, verse 14, they will swoop down on the shoulders of the Philistines in the west, and together they shall plunder the people of the east. Those are enemies. They'll be victorious. In other words, it'll be a day of victory. They shall put out their hand against Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites shall obey them. So again, uh, warring nations put under, underneath the leadership of, this, of, the, of Israel. And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the Sea of Egypt and will wave his hand over the river. In my Bible, it's capitalized, probably meaning the Euphrates, all right? Um, Often called, anyway, the river. We take it to be that. Uh, He'll wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath, strike it into seven channels. He will lead people across in sandals, which obviously means you're not swimming across it. It's accessible. There will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. Is this a gathering of the nation of Israel again? Um, Often among evangelicals, there's discussion about God's future for the nation of Israel. And again, that's a big discussion, uh, worthy of a lot of class time. But I would mark myself as one of those who believes that God has a future for national Israel Uh, Not everyone who's an evangelical would believe that, but I do. Sometimes people wonder, what is it with the evangelicals loving Israel? Like, yeah, well, I think the God I follow and worship also loves the nation of Israel. And what he loves, I'm going to love too. And so I'm hanging with them, the apple of God's eye. Texts like this 
lead me that direction. It isn't just like come up with it out of nowhere. Texts like this help us to go there. Another day is being described here. I mentioned the four points of the compass. A day in which the, the, the nations are, are ruled over by God's Messiah and God's people. A healing of a breach between a nation. It's looking at a nationwide, or rather a, a worldwide time. And I mention here under that first bullet point, when you see the references to the nations and the peoples, you should automatically be thinking Abrahamic covenant and the Great Commission. Okay, we've talked about that a bit. The Abrahamic covenant, of course, God's going to extend blessings to the whole world through Messiah Jesus who was to come. And that is a theme that runs all the way from, through the Bible, is the blessing of God to the nations. Perspectives traces that course as well, of course, uh, in, in a course work uh, setting. But the blessing of God to the nations through the seed of Abraham, I think this text emphasizes the same thing again. Now, God's promise is then to David, amazingly fulfilled, I believe, uh, actually literally fulfilled, first coming of Jesus and a second coming. God's promise is then worldwide, including the nations. Chapter 12 then, I think is a response of praise. And I would suggest it comes in two parts. Verses one to three, have personal pronouns in the singular. And verses four to six, call the world to praise. Okay, so look for those differences, please, as I'm going to read all six of those verses. Listen to the personal aspect and the corporate aspect, okay? So looking at this mighty work of God, Isaiah responds like this, you will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Okay, stop for a minute. How, how is God's anger turned away from us? How is that? It's Jesus, isn't it? Isaiah would point us to, to, to the suffering Messiah, Isaiah 53, the one who bore our sins before the Father, satisfied the Father's wrath, So here the writer says, though you were angry with me, your anger was turned away that you might comfort me. Yes, I think indeed looking to Jesus. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. So I think that's personal, personal praise. And then it's shift. And you will say in that day, Give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be known, where? In all the earth. Sing and shout, or shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. And I'm picturing this as a call to praise in that day, verse 1, in that day, verse 4, on the day that we see this take place. Do you plan to be there? I hope so, because if you know Christ is your Savior, you'll be there. You'll see this day firsthand. You'll have a front row seat, and you'll see that, that day of peace, and you'll look around to whoever is nearby and say, can you believe it? Here it is. It's, it's what the Bible said, and we're looking at it. Pinch me now. Amazing. Look at this, and you will say, give thanks to the Lord. And you will say this. I think these are the words that you'll say. 
Look, look. Do you see it? Wow. And I think every child of God will. Even if it comes at a time you didn't think, or you had your eschatology backwards, or I have mine, there'll be this day. How do I know it? Well, I, I, I read it in the Bible, and that works for me. Wow. I hope you'll be there too. I hope that that longing in your heart, all of us, every one of us, that longing in your heart for peace, ultimate peace, I hope you'll be there to see it because you know Jesus. And I also would, would long for this for you as well. In the meantime, as you wait for the day that the Prince of Peace settles it all, I hope you know the Prince of Peace for today. He is still that Prince of Peace now, even as we walk in this fallen world. Walking beside us and caring for us in our difficulties and struggles and brokenness. The one who is going to do all of that still is at work today. Don't you forget it. Maybe you have things to take to him and say, oh God, my Prince of Peace, help me here. I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to say a word about communion and how we will conclude our service today. Um, But pray with me here, if you would. Our Father, our hearts together truly do long for this great day spoken of when all of, of nature is in harmony again. We resonate with the words of Revela- or sorry, Romans 8, where we think about all of creation groaning. Because uh, we do too. We're part of it. This creation that's subjected to the futility of sin, longing for a day of redemption. And our Father, that day is coming when you will redeem, finish your work of redemption for us and redeem creation. We believe it. We long to see it. But our Father, in the meantime, would you be that Prince of Peace to us? Jesus, the one who's to come, wonderful Counselor, mighty God, Prince of Peace, everlasting Father. Oh, Lord, this is so good. Thank you. Now, as we turn our thoughts to Jesus in his work on the cross, would you draw our hearts to yours. In Jesus' name, amen. As always, as we celebrate communion, we invite you, if you know Christ, to share with us in taking the bread and the cup. The way we do that these days, we have three communion stations. And in a moment, I'll just invite you to come on the sides over here, if you would come up the outside aisle, and then pick up both cups. All right, there's two. The crackers in the bottom, juices in the top, so make sure you get them both Come back to your seat down those aisles from the middle if you'd come down this aisle and do the same and then return to your seats if you'd like to join us. I invite you to do so if you'd rather just wait in your seat. Others will be back there uh, very, very soon. Also, if you'd like to serve a person near you, you, you're welcome to do that. And if there's anyone who's mobility impaired, it would be great if you would serve them as well. Be aware of those around you. All right, please come and let's be served. Down through the years, God's people have celebrated communion in myriad places, settings in life, sometimes in great danger, sometimes in hiding, sometimes in large crowds, sometimes with different kinds of loaves of bread or grape juice or wine or all kinds of different ways. God's people have obeyed Jesus' command to remember him. 
little cracker or piece of bread is there to remind us of the body of Christ broken for us on the cross. A little cup of juice is there to remind us of his blood shed for us. Jesus intended that we would remember because we forget. We forget often. And so he said, do this in remembrance of me. Remember. Now, to help us today, I'm going to read a prayer. Uh, It is a Puritan prayer. It's from this little book called Valley of Vision that you can order yourself on Amazon. Uh, It's a collection of Puritan prayers. And I read through some of these and I think that for this, the first time of communion in a year, this is a good prayer to read. And so I'm going to do that. And when you hear a line or two that you think particularly applies to you, make it your own. So the writer says this, Lord God Almighty, I ask not to be enrolled among the earthly great and rich, but to be numbered with the spiritually blessed. Make it my presence supreme persevering concern to obtain those blessings which are spiritual in their nature, eternal in their continuance, satisfying in their possession. Preserve me from a false estimate of the whole or part of my character. May I pay regard to my principles as well as my conduct, my motives as well as my actions. Help me never to to mistake the excitement of my emotions for the renewing of the Holy Spirit. Never to judge my faith by occasional impressions and impulses, but by my constant and prevailing disposition. May my heart be right with you and my life as becomes the gospel. May I maintain a supreme regard to another and better world and feel and confess myself a stranger and pilgrim here. Afford me all the direction, defense, support, and consolation my journey hence requires and grant me a mind stayed upon you. Give me a large abundance of the supply of the Spirit of Jesus that I may be prepared for every duty Love you in all, your, all my mercies. Submit to you in every trial. Trust you when walking in darkness. Have peace in you amidst life's changes. Lord, I believe. Help thou my unbelief and uncertainties. I think that's a good prayer. We sang earlier, all glory be to Christ. All glory be to Christ. As we remember Christ broken for us on the cross, we say all glory be to him. Let's remember him together. And the little cup of juice, as we remember not only his body, but his blood shed for us on the cross. Let's remember him. Would you stand with me, please? Let's close our time together in prayer. Our Father, we look forward to the day when the Prince of Peace rules and reigns, and we are there in your presence. Until then, our Father, even this week, as we walk into the first week of another year, a year that may bring great 
and wonderful blessings or difficult and unexpected trials or even for some of us, uh, this could be the last year that we walk on this earth. But our Father, whatever comes, may we say and pray, all glory be to Christ. All glory be to Christ until the day that we see you, the Prince of Peace. We pray together in his name, Jesus. Amen.